If you would, turn with me once again this morning to the Psalter, to the book of Psalms, Psalm chapter 10. Uh, The book of Psalms in the middle of your Bible, Psalm chapter 10. And uh, I want to encourage you, as I do from time to time, as I spoke to the newcomers class this morning, my desire as we open up God's Word this morning is not simply to read a passage and then close my Bible and be done with it and just tell you what Nate Hitchcock thinks about things this morning. My desire is to walk through God's Word and to see what God has to say to us. And so for that reason... This is going to appear and then disappear magically, but I'd love for you to keep your Bibles open in your laps if you have them so that I can go back and refer you to where we're at and and what's going on. We've been reminded over the past few weeks of the necessity as we've kind of begun this summer excursion in the Psalms. The last few weeks, I've sought to remind us of the necessity of remembering and listening to the voice of God. The voice of the Lord. And I first drew your attention to the voice of the Lord in Psalm 81 through the goodness of His Word, right? Through this, through that which we sing and you hear and you're about to hear again. And then last week, through the glory and through the majesty of nature, Psalm 29, He is the Lord of the storm. Well, this morning in Psalm chapter 10, we turn our hearts a a bit more inward. Letting the Psalms lead us to language and to a posture in this broken world that I think we all need. And as I said last week, uh, this series on the Psalms that we're doing this summer, I'm pretty sure that these Psalms are not in your top 10. In fact, Psalm 10 may not be in your top 50 of the 150 Psalms that we have in God's Word. Nevertheless, We need these psalms. We need Psalm 10. You see, I chose Psalm 10 this week because Psalm 10 is a lament. Psalm 10 is a song to sing when things aren't great. It's a song to sing when we are caught in a world that just isn't right. There's good indication that David is the writer of this psalm. It doesn't say that, but you might notice if you have your Bibles open that it doesn't say anything about this psalm in the title. And the reason for that is because most scholars believe that Psalm 9 and 10 were originally one psalm. In fact, if you look at the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, it's listed in the Septuagint as one psalm. We also know this because Psalm 9 and 10 form an acrostic. So every second poetic line in Hebrew begins with a new letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And so Psalm 10 picks up where Psalm 9 left off. Now one can understand how the Psalms got separated and how they got divided into two Psalms because the themes of them are very different. And so we're just going to look this morning at Psalm 10 Or, if you want to look at it this way, as the second half of Psalm 9 and 10. But we're going to skip Psalm 9 and just focus our hearts on Psalm 10. So, with that introduction, if you would, stand for the reading of God's Word, if you're able. And listen as I read the entirety of the psalm, verses 1 through 16. Psalm 10, again, a psalm of David. This is God's Word. 
Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord in the pride of his face. The wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of his sight, for all his foes, he puffs at them. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. He sits in ambush in the villages. He, in hiding places, he murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws him into his net. The helpless are crushed, sink down and fall by his might. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Arise, O Lord. O God, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account? But you do see. For you note mischief and vexation that you may take it into your hands. To you the helpless commits himself. You have been a helper to the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. Ah, the Lord is King forever and ever. The nations perish from His land. O Lord, You hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. Amen. This is the Word of the Lord. Glory to the Father and to the Son and Go ahead and be seated. Singing the Gloria Patri after a psalm like that has some extra sweetness, I must say. Brothers and sisters, this is a psalm about living among wickedness. David wrote from his own time and place, his own experience, from the experience of God's people Israel thousands of years ago, the specifics of, of which we don't know. But here we sit, Ascension Presbyterian in Edmonds, Washington in 2022, and these words, these cries are no less relevant. Perhaps as you've heard that psalm read to you this morning, you put some of those phrases into 
your context or into our collective context as a corporate church, capital C. We live in a wicked world, right? Not just a broken world full of of, of storms and natural disasters and inadequacies and mistakes and accidents and insufficiencies, but a world of terrorism. A world where ideologies not only fly in the face of biblical truth, but actively pray like wolves in sheep's clothing on the innocence of youth. And on those who, as the psalmist says, those who are helpless among us. Let me put a finer point on it. For instance, we not only have confusion in our world these days about gender and about sexuality, but we have active and intentional proselytizing in that confusion going on in our school systems and in our culture at large. Of course, as we prayed about earlier, we have the terrible evil of abortion, and now with it, the light of, in light of anticipated uh, judicial pronouncements that are going to come down in this nation, the threat of violence. And so we have pro-abortion terrorist groups who've attacked PRCs around the country and in our own community planning to carry out more violence in the weeks to come. Many have gotten away with the violence which has only emboldened them all the more. How does this make us feel as Christians? As lovers of righteousness? It's incredibly frustrating, isn't it? It's infuriating. It makes us angry. And it's that question that begins our walk through this psalm. In fact, that's how I'd like to organize our thinking this morning as we walk through the message of this psalm with simply a question and then an answer. That's the two points. And the question is this. What do we do when the wicked prosper? Church, what do we do when the wicked prosper? Verses 2 through 11, you can look at it there with me. That stands, it paints a disturbing and unsettling picture, doesn't it? It's a description of godlessness. It's a description of practical atheism. It's a description that lacks specifics, making it all the more easy to apply to our world. And it's all of that that prompts the frustration of verse 1 and the cry, which we'll unpack in just a moment, the cry of David, why? Oh Lord, why? Three things characterize these people. Their attitude towards God, the attitude of their own hearts, and their disregard for others. Let's walk through those real briefly. Their attitude towards God. It's this core presupposition that determines all of their actions. We see it in verse 3. He actively renounces the Lord. We see it in verse 4. He passively resigns himself to the fact that there is no God. We see it in verse 11. God has forgotten. Even if he's there, he doesn't care. 
And of course, I was talking to somebody about this just yesterday. If you remove accountability from God, if you remove the standard of God's word for our lives, why wouldn't we as humans participate in some of the things that we see prevalent in our world today? I mean, if we're just a byproduct of evolutionary processes and therefore are gods unto ourselves, then eat and drink and be merry and who cares who gets in the way? And all of this, this attitude just adds to the frustration of the righteous, right? Those of us who know him and love him, and yet there seems to be silence. Well, then David goes on to talk about the attitude of their own hearts. We see this captured for us in verses 2 through 5. There's a smugness about what they do. Fueled by their belief that no one will hold them to account. They puff, <laughs> the scriptures say. They, they puff at the suggestion that they ought to conform to some standard. And then maybe, maybe the hardest pill to swallow is their prosperity in this life. Their prosperity seems to signal to them that they are justified in what they do, so they simply don't care. They're brazen in their actions. And that's the last descriptive thing in this stanza, is their actions. There's two levels of violence here. And the first has to do with the mouth, interestingly enough. Verse 7, look at it with me. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. Now, we might say that sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me, but we know that's not true. As the book of James says, words are a spark. The tongue is a spark that can set a whole forest on fire. The tongue is a rudder that can steer an incredibly large ship. Words are weapons. Language can be wielded for harm. C.S. Lewis, a name that all of you know, Christian apologist, writer of the Narnia series, author. He wrote in his book, Reflections on the Psalms, he says this, I had half expected that in a simpler and more violent age, when more evil was done with the knife, the big stick, and the firebrand, that less would be done by talk. But in reality, the psalmist mentioned Hardly any kind of evil more than this one, which the most civilized societies share. No historical adjustments are here required. We are in the world that we know. Isn't that interesting? And as I thought about this in our own context and and how we can apply this, how we can think about the, the prosperity of those who might use language against God's design and God's standard, I thought of two things. Number one, of the fact that there may come a day when standing in this pulpit and calling certain behavior sin may be illegal. And in fact, it is in some places. Just north of the border. And the second thing I thought about is the manipulation of language in our day and age. How some want to use language to thwart 
God's design, right? There is an evil in the changing of definitions and in the blurring of distinctions that's actively going on in our world. Let me give you a real pointed example that you all remember hearing. A Supreme Court justice nominee, one of the most intelligent women on the planet, said publicly that she can't define what a woman is because she's not a biologist. Indeed, many refuse to be clear in their speech because their godless tongues are filled with mischief and deceit. If we're going to look at David's language. Words are weapons. Language can be wielded to ungodly ends. And it's frustrating. But there's another level of violence mentioned here in verse 8. He murders the innocent. Now, what this was describing in David's day, I don't know. But I know of an evil in our day that could be described as this. 63 million innocents in the last 50 years. And yet the wicked get away with it. They flaunt their freedom to do so. They seemingly prosper in the midst of it all. So what are we as God's people to do? That's the question. We need an answer, and David gives it to us. The answer is this. The righteous live by faith. The righteous live by faith. What do God's people do when the wicked prosper? The righteous live by faith. I recognize that that phrase is not found in this psalm. I actually borrowed it from Habakkuk 2.4. There the Lord Yahweh speaks to his people about hard times, specifically about the Babylonian empire that's coming. And he instructed them that in the midst of their darkest of days, they need to learn to walk by faith and not by sight. And this this psalm does the very same thing. Let's go back to the beginning. Right out of the gate, David pleads, Why, Lord, why don't you see? In the face of tragedy, in the face of injustice, you're either watching from a distance without intervening or you're not even around. Like you don't care. Now those are honest words. Those are honest cries from the Lord's servant. It's... It's a model in some sense for the kind of of candid praying that we can strive for in reverence and awe, yes, but in candidness and, and in honesty. But what I want you to see this morning is that David's cry of why is not a rebellious cry. It's a perplexed why. In other words, David is saying, Lord, you're not being true to your character. Lord, this is abnormal. This is not like you to allow this. I know you're not enjoying this. You're a God of goodness and tenderness and life, and so why? You see, as David complains to Yahweh, he cries, but he knows he's there. He knows God is present. Why else would he be crying to him? And so this isn't a cry of doubt. It's not a cry of rebellion. It's a cry of perplexity. It reminds me of the disciples' profound statement in the Gospel. I believe, but help my unbelief. Here's the point, church. We can be confused. (laughs) We can be half in the dark. 
We can be frustrated about what we're seeing. And we can still be engaged with God. Indeed, that's the nature of faith. David doesn't understand, but he hasn't abandoned seeking answers. You may not understand. You may not see what he is doing, but he is there, and he is good, and his purposes are perfect. And so cry out to him. Charles Spurgeon, the Baptist preacher, is quoted as saying this, if we were carried in the arms of God over every stream, where would be the trial and experience which trouble is meant to teach us? Now, we may not like that. I don't like that quote. I want to be carried all the time over every stream. I don't want to get my feet wet once. But God's ways are not my ways. His wisdom is perfect. Mine's not. He's perfect. I'm not. I'm a work in progress, but He's always at work in me. He's always at work in you. The righteous live by faith. The righteous cry out to God. The righteous trust that He hears. And here's maybe the most important statement of the sermon. The righteous are righteous because of the righteous one. Our standing, our security, our confidence that He is working all things out for the good of those who love Him is not from our goodness, but because Jesus went to the cross allowing Himself to be forsaken by His Father to allow His Father to turn His back on Him because He bore our sin. And therefore, the Father never will turn His back on us. This is the reality that undergirds everything. The righteous live by faith. So as the psalm closes, or at least begins to close, David cries to not forget. And the psalm starts to gather momentum. It's the best kind of momentum here at the end. As David recalls the character of the God in the midst of of the evil, he finds comfort in who God is. And he further models for us what this prayer looks like. It may start out with a cry of frustration and anxiety and wondering and perplexity. But then as we get to verse 14, walk through it with me. Verse 14, you do see. You are a helper to the helpless. Verse 15, break the arm of the wicked. In other words, dissolve their power. Verse 16, you do reign. You are in control. Verse 17, you do hear us when we pray. You will strengthen our hearts. You will give us stamina to the end. And then verse 18, you will bring justice once and for all bringing an end to the madness and making all things right. Peter told the church in 2 Peter 3, scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of His coming? But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The way David ends this psalm is a beautiful progression that begins in this life and has relevance in this life and culminates in the life that is to come. In the end of all things, 
Brothers and sisters, this is the life of faith. This is the cry of faith. This is the actions of the righteous in the midst of unrighteousness. Why? What do we do when the wicked prosper? The righteous live by faith. We don't lose hope. We don't get discouraged. We grieve? Yes. We act? Yes. Don't hear from this sermon that we ought not take action in the face of wickedness. There are other places in the Scripture that we could go to where the Scriptures admonish us to defend the helpless. Indeed, the Lord uses His people to do just that. But here in Psalm 10, our eyes are lifted beyond to the heavens as we long for faith to be made sight as we trust in what we cannot see. May you be strengthened in your faith as you're reminded of His character, as you're reminded of your place. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we long for that day when indeed our faith will be made sight, when all that has been promised to us will come true, when all that is wrong will be made right when all injustice will face the judge of all things. Father, we thank You most of all that when we think about that day of reckoning, we don't think about it with terror because we are Yours. We are righteous because we have been declared righteous by the righteousness of another. And so, Father, may we hide in Him this day. May we cry through Him this day and all our days. May we be united to Him as we walk in faith, as we walk not in discouragement, not in anxiety, not even in anger, but in joy and in hope and in peace. for the glory of Your name. Father, this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.